The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. Pat Gray. When this reporter asked him about some of the claims he was making, here's his question. Are you a denier? When Clark tried to finish his question, Gore said, you are a denier. He questioned one part of Gore's movie that cuts from Gore on his melting glacier to a flooded street in Miami Beach with a voiceover from Gore making a strong connection between melting ice and flooding in Miami. It's proven one has nothing to do with you. Pat Gray. Weekdays, noon to 3 Eastern, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. It's always an honor to be with you. Thank you for joining me. If you're back from listening last week or any other week, uh, thank you. I hope you uh, find a voice here of reason, a voice of patriotism, a voice that brings you a discussion that you won't find anywhere else. A moderate Muslim, a Muslim that believes in American freedom and liberty and is unafraid to take on what I believe is the primary cancer of our time, of the 21st century, political Islam. Islamism and all of its facilitators, all of its empowerment agents, its money, its network, and its establishment. And in the era of Trump now, there's nothing, I think, more apropos than fighting the Islamic establishment, the global establishment, and also its domestic agents. Today, I'm going to take you on a little trip uh, from talking about uh, wealthy billionaires here in America that work with the Islamists in the Middle East to think tanks that uh, seem to somehow think that working with nonviolent Islamists keeps them at bay, to talking about ISIS and how they're shifting their economics from oil to slavery. And last, Russia and Hezbollah. So, first... Let's talk a second about, you know, there was a major story that I think is somewhere in the, in the range of three to 4,000 words that the Washington Post printed on October 11th, report by Michael Cranish, who wrote a story called, He's Better Than This, says Thomas Barak, Trump's loyal whisperer. And Tom Barak is the well-known billionaire executive chairman of Colony North Star. And this is a real estate firm that is based out of California. But the billionaire has uh, quite a history and has become somebody who's actually quite close to President Trump and the law and uh, began as a lawyer related to working closely with Richard Nixon and I'm going to give you a little bit of his bio, but at the end of the day, what's important here is I'm, I'm, I'm going to ignore all of the politics about this article in that this article was about a billionaire whisperer who, according to Michael Cranish, somehow was the major point of the piece was that He's able to get Donald Trump's ear. He doesn't criticize him too much and yet criticized him on some of his rhetoric and some of his vitriol, his Muslim ban and other things. And that was the entire piece, basically, boiled down from thousands of words to that. Now, in this piece, which I, what I think was lost on the reporter and the Washington Post editors who ran this, and also I think most Americans that would be reading this is, Tom Barak is a well-known Arab billionaire, Arab-American, royal, uh, Roman Catholic, Arab-American billionaire from Lebanon. His family's from Lebanon. He claims to speak Arabic fluently, but learned it afterwards after he began having multiple cozy relationships with princes in Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, and Qatar. But here is a long piece, and I read it, and read it, and read it, and was waiting for the time in which this billionaire would talk about his investments in reform, in, in, 
in working to advance ideas of democracy and liberty, to defeat the kleptocrats, to defeat those who hate free markets, who hate freedom and work on socialist kleptocracies that steal the property rights of their citizens. And there was nothing in the story about that. Nothing whatsoever. Now, I did a little bit of research, and I wasn't able to find any investments that Mr. Barack made in in reform-minded, democratic-minded groups as an Arab-American leader, as probably one of the most wealthy Arab-Americans in the country that I had never heard of before this week's report, and now I've gotten up to speed. But if you do a little research on the man, he obviously spoke at the Republican National Convention and then went on to become one of Trump's top fundraisers, but has been a longtime Republican. And you just look at his Wikipedia biography and his biography at Forbes and elsewhere. His first job was for the law firm of Herbert Kalbach, President Nixon's personal lawyer. He then worked in Saudi Arabia for Floor Corporation learned Arabic, worked for Saudi princes. The article said that he became friends with Saudi princes by happening to golf with some of them. And then he opened diplomatic relations between Saudi Arabia and Haiti, having a good relationship with Jean-Claude Duvalier, baby doc, at the request of investor Lonnie Don. He then was deputy undersecretary of the interior for Reagan under Watt. And... There's a number of other details. But at the end of the day, as, as an Arab-American, focused now after the Arab awakening since 2011 on finding those rooted in trying to better the countries that they escaped, like my parents who escaped the Ba'athist fascists in Syria, and this man who the Washington Post describes as currently traveling the world in a private jet and on yachts, but says while Trump was born into wealth, Barack was upbringing was hardly presaged that he would become a fellow billionaire, as the Post writes this week. His paternal grandfather was a Christian emigre from a city called Zahle, and those of us from the area know that city, that at the time was part of Syria and today is within the borders of Lebanon. Barack's father ran a small grocery store in Culver City, California, and the family was raised in a modest home in the shadow of MGM Studios. He became a lawyer. And according to this, his his ability to speak Arabic led to an assignment to go to Saudi Arabia and work on a gas deal. He played squash with the local Saudis, and soon the Saudis brought in their brothers, and it turned out they were all related to the House of Saud. He spent many hours listening to the Arabs discuss the world, which gave him great respect for their society and community, quote-unquote. Seriously, this billionaire is telling the Washington Post this week that he has great respect for their, for their society and community? Barf. The princes in turn hired him and he became, as he put it, the American representative of the boys. The American representative of the boys. And then it goes on to talk about connections to Manafort and others. He had a very close relationship as the front man, quote-unquote, according to According to the real deal, in March 2000, earlier this year, Kathleen Chen of the Real Deal wrote that uh, wrote that uh, construction was underway for a 77,000 square foot Bel Air mansion attached to billionaire Donald Trump's friend Tom Barack, who filed plans for the project in 2014. But the Colony Capital CEO is not building it for himself. The major investor behind the design project is El Thani Royal Family of Qatar. So now you know this Qatari relationship, which I'll explain for you in a second, explains why Barack was a little upset. President Trump showed some independence from his billionaire friends and went tough on Qatar because of their fealty to Iran, their fealty to the Brotherhood, and the destabilization influence they've had globally. So many of us were cheering President Trump for his isolation and his support of the Saudis in their attempts to isolate Qatar. 
So while I, you know the the outreach sales of hundreds of billions of dollars of arms to the Saudis, I'm not a fan of, which President Trump endorsed, as you and I talked about earlier this year. The fact that he was isolating the Qataris that I believe is one of the primary cancer cells of the Muslim Brotherhood globally through Al Jazeera and other imams like Qardawi that pipe out their global anti-American, anti-Western, anti-Semitic, anti-Israeli rhetoric that radicalizes millions of Muslims across the planet. You see in, in billionaire Tom Barak, there's a friendship with the Qataris that he was trying to temper President Trump's reaction to them. The major investor behind the design project is the Althani royal family, and that Barack was just a front man. It's got at least $100 million, probably more, in the project already from Qatar. And the site? Eight acres of land above the Bel Air Country Club, purchased in 2010 for $35 million. And his ties with that family expanded at that time. In 2011, he worked with the Qatar Investment Authority, a sovereign wealth fund that oversees the royal family to help them purchase Miramax Films and some of its assets for $660 million. Where'd you hear that earlier this week? Oh, the Harvey Weinstein story. Harvey Weinstein's company had owned Miramax Films. Miramax Films was produced by that company, and then he sold it off in this deal that apparently Tom Barak was behind. The billionaire Barak intervened in 2015 on behalf of the Qatari family in a dispute over the ownership of the Claridge Hotel in London in a bidding war with the Daily Telegraph owners. The Barclays, Barak swooped in to purchase $82 million of debt on the property, which Sheikh Hamad bin Khalifa al-Thani the former emir of Qatar, acquired with his son, Jassim bin Hamad, for $2.4 billion. And as this piece finishes, it notes that the al are no strangers to Los Angeles. Another one of Sheikh Hamad bin al-Khalifa al al-Thani's son made headlines when he was filmed drag racing his bright yellow Ferrari in the streets of Beverly Hills. And he fled, telling the police he had immunity. Interesting stories. But at the end of the day, I think it's relevant for those of us working tirelessly with grassroots, freedom-loving, human rights activists. And yet the Washington Post does a long expose revealing publicly, even for those of us in the Arabic community who had never heard of this billionaire. While we struggle to make ends meet in think tanks. Here you have a man working for the interests of the Islamic establishment and living quite well off of that. And the little clique of billionaires and heads of governments having more impact on policy than any of us would ever dream of based on ideological purity for freedom, for liberty, for free markets, and for the defeat of dictatorships like the Saudis, the Qataris, and others ultimately in true reform, true democratization, and true disruption against the establishment. When we come back, let's talk about what should be the strategy. Obviously, some of these relationships can't be abandoned too quickly. But is it too much to ask those who've lived well in America to give back to their motherlands in response to the Arab awakening. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. Reaching the fault lines of today. The Blaze Radio Network. The progressive movement is full of lies. Why do Americans keep falling for the deception? In his new book, Liars, Glenn Beck reveals the simple answer, fear. At our most basic level, we're all afraid of something. And progressives exploit this by offering us solutions to our fears. Solutions based on lies and an unrelenting hunger for power and control. Understanding the roots of these lies is key to helping us stop the disease of progressivism. 
Liars by Glenn Beck. On sale now at glennbeck.com slash liars. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. It is always great to be with you. I talk about the things that I think uh, you won't hear too many people talk about. Shake the trees, disruption, fighting the establishment, globally especially. And the key here is fighting for freedom against theocracy as a Muslim and trying to build those networks and platforms that can do that honestly, transparently, and clearly. In the last segment, we were talking about the Washington Post's dismissal in their 3,000-plus word report about billionaire Tom Barack's relationship with President Trump while ignoring the genesis of this billionaire who went from a grocery store family to which the Post describes as humble beginnings to relationships with the Saudis and Qataris that then funded a now over-billion-dollar firm in property and real estate. And he holds those relationships very dear. What is the moral? You know, people then often just dismiss these as business relationships. If you follow me on Facebook at MZ Jasser or on Twitter at Dr. Zudi Jasser, D-R-Z-U-H-D-I, you'll find many who say, well, these are just business relationships. It's much different than ideological debate. And it's part of free markets. What? The question is, morally, what ethical responsibility does a billionaire, or in their early beginnings, a millionaire have when he meets princes and gets into real estate deals to ignore them or not? And I can tell you that, yes, the morality, when I enter into business with any partners here in Phoenix or in the United States. When you do business, it's not just that somebody brings to the ca- to the table cash and is upfront in a contract that you make, but it's their reputation. It's who they are. If they are, as we see now with Harvey Weinstein, nobody should do business with him, whether he's the president of a corrupt dictatorship or a Hollywood mogul who is a misogynist and a serial predator. So similarly, you work with the House of Saud, a royal family that runs a government that imprisons and tortures reformers, that treats women as fourth class, that just now wants backslapping because they finally may be giving them the right to drive, and cuts the hands of those who steals, has had more beheadings in their country than ISIS has in the last year, and then he also works with the Qataris, who's listed on human rights organizations as leading countries that has slavery and and other issues that are just very problematic, not to mention Al Jazeera, which is the font of anti-American propaganda globally. So to say that then making and helping them invest in the purchase of Western corporations, which is done under the rubric of having had an Arab origin because of a family from Zahle, Syria or Lebanon. And then he shares their language and smokes a hookah with them and shares the accent and stories about their father and grandfather. You're telling me there's no moral responsibility for any of that? Any of that? Rather than isolation, as we, as we see now, we're quickly isolating Cuba again because of what they do. We're isolating Iran as we should be with sanctions, regimes that do not fit into the rules and the human rights categories and standards that we have should be isolated and pressured. And I think American investors who live in the lap of freedom, and especially those of us with family roots there, should give back to our families by helping them reform. And I find it very disappointing 
And I know most of the reform groups, none of them that I know are being helped by Mr. Barack. You could somewhat say that, well, maybe he was making these investments and then turning around and helping infuse the reform and the revolutions against them. But that doesn't seem to be true in any Google search that I've done. So I think this is all very important. Relationships with Mr. Trump, President Trump, fine. That I'll, I'll leave that politics and that palace intrigue to the swamp media that seems to only care about anything as far as it's related to gossip related to the president and Donald Trump as a person rather than Donald Trump as the president. Because if they cared about those values, they'd expose, I think, some of the values that are part of what America should be standing for abroad. The Washington Post now has its mantra, democracy dies in the darkness. And democracy wasn't mentioned once in this piece. What a sham. What a complete sham. They don't care about values of democracy domestically or abroad. It's only about partisan politics. And I have to tell you, one of the themes that you and I seem to be end up talking about every week is that it's always related to partisan politics. How can the Muslim issue, whether it's a ban or ISIS or radicalization, be used by liberals to attack conservatives, by Republicans to attack Democrats? Let's use it as a wedge issue and, and forget the reality. There was a debate this week that I saw, a brief one, AEI posted it, uh, Catherine Zimmerman, who specializes in issues on foreign policy and Islamism. Uh, she posted an interesting point-counterpoint between herself and Robin Simcox of the Heritage Foundation. And I bring this to you because it's remarkable to me that what I think is pretty obvious, and Robin Simcox, I think, does a great job in pointing out that the question for her debate was, who are America's real enemies? Are the nonviolent Islamists who believe in political systems and, and quote-unquote democracy by election, by ballot box, are they our enemies or not? And Robin points out the positions that I've had for a long time and our families have had that really believe in the principles of morality of freedom that Islamists will always be Islamists that the more dangerous they are, actually, the more they appear to share our values, the more they will be used to radicalize larger groups. And if you treat them as enemies, as he says, you will not mistake them for friends. And when they mistake for friends, as one of the key points that he makes that I've never made and I think is very important, is that even our allies, like Britain, that end up then using Islamists will no longer be our allies because their policies being steered by domestic Islamists like the Muslim Council of Britain and other radical groups that may be nonviolent and end up driving large wedges in our NATO alliance and known historic allies like the U.S. and Britain. This is an extremely important point. I'd ask you to read his points. But even more important, which is what I wanted to talk to you today, is to look at Catherine Zimmerman at the American Enterprise Institute. Now, the AEI is, you got John Bolton on there as a, as a uh, um, senior board member, I believe. You've got a, a number of known conservatives. The AEI is always labeled as that neoconservative think tank. And I don't know if there's been a shift or what's been going on. I, I, I debated one of their scholars a couple weeks ago, about Burma, who was defending Aung San Suu Kyi. And somehow that her position was nuanced in how she was dealing with the Rohingya. Nuanced? Silence and, and, and avoiding and ignoring the UN that protected her for decades when she was truly a political dissident. That's nuance. But anyway, back to the subject. What, what strikes me, and Catherine then you know, provides at AEI this debate a response that, well, there's a utilitarian reason. She says that um, ultimately, if we if we isolate them, we drive them into the hand of, hands of jihadists, uh, we will, um, by denying them access to the political process, drive them underground and ultimately not provide for their normalization. And she even uses the example of Turkey. 
She states that treating Erdogan as an enemy, however, will deprive the United States of all leverage over him and create a crisis in NATO as well, of which Turkey remains a member. And then she goes on to use examples of Tunisia, where a Nahda split from the Islamist movement to pursue a strategy of consensus, but there's no guarantee of permanency. So on the one hand, you can't argue that we we help them and then they always lose at the ballot box. But on the other hand, to say that we should not isolate them. You can't do both. Either we are openly anti-Islamist or we end up helping build them platforms. So I would argue that what she argues is in Tunisia, when we when they became normalized, they were defeated, and that some would argue that every time there's elections, they will end up losing. Well, that's actually despite our work, not because of it. Nobody could ever argue that the United States has had a strategy of advancing secular liberal thinkers and anti-Islamists in our strategy. Imagine if that was the case. You wouldn't be having the severity of the war in Syria or or the the severity of the chaos in Libya. Yes, there'd still be chaos and there'd still be uh, a lot of uh, uh, lack of civil society, etc. But I believe that there would be much more of a chance for groups that share our values. And ultimately, my question, conservative think tanks, be it AEI or others, where were these ideas in the Cold War? We never, I don't remember, reading in my historical review of the Cold War approaches, said that the U.S. Information Agency should be working to help nonviolent communists who are not in the Soviet umbrella, who are not behind the Iron Curtain, who are working against the Soviets. We should embrace them because we need to help them in the political process because ultimately they will lose anyway. I argued in the Intelligence Squared debate many years ago with Daniel Pipes as my partner, we argued whether elected Islamists were better or worse than dictators. Now, obviously, we argued that dictators in the, in the short term were better, but our argument was couched in the belief that ultimately both are bad. But Islamists have global caliphism. They believe in a caliphate. They don't have state limitations in what they do. They have regional and global ambitions, which makes them much more dangerous. So therefore, this is much bigger than the Cold War because it's in a political ideology that threatens to use 1.6 billion Muslims as its constituents and already has the seeds planted for theocracy in most of these Muslim-majority countries in their Sharia state. So if we're going to fight that, we need to have a strategy. Conservative think tanks need to wake up that that strategy of defeating theocracy and advancing liberty and democracy needs to start now because we need to have a Malaysian model for it, an Indonesian one, a Saudi one, an Egyptian, a Syrian one, ultimately that defeats both secular dictatorships and theocracy. But if right now we still have think tanks in America that are somehow saying that political Islamists should be helped because at least then we give them area to breathe and we work with them in an appeasement way defies all of our values. And I think, ultimately, follow the money. I think that goes back to what you and I started talking about at the beginning of this program, which is we have people in the global Islamic swamp that are invested deeply with Gulf money, seen in both parties, Republican and Democrat, that are so invested in controlling in the short term, ignoring the grassroots, ignoring human rights, ignoring revolutions, ignoring democracy, and simply wanting stable Middle East dictatorships, much like we carved out in the Sykes-Picot Agreement and afterwards. And yes, those national identities, I think, are very important. And much was much of what was done after Sykes-Picot made sense because those national identities needed that to be there in order to form states that were not based in theocracy or colonial identities. But now as they evolve in the Arab awakening, where are they evolving to? 
And I think those national identities based in ideas of freedom, unity, liberalism, equality are important and part of that genesis in the next generation. It's not going to be helped by billionaires that continue to help spread the wealth of princes and dictators and theocrats and kleptocrats. And it's also not going to be helped by conservative think tanks that believe that the best pathway to revolution, to freedom, is somehow through a pathway of appeasement of Islamists who don't share our ideas. They didn't do that in the Cold War. We didn't work with peaceful communists. We worked with free market thinkers, with democratic thinkers, with the Solzhenitsyns and Natan Sharansky's. And we should do the same now with the anti-Islamists. This is Zudi Jasser. I'll be right back. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. It is always a pleasure to be with you, get you up to speed on what's happening in the world of Islam, the world of domestic and foreign policy against terrorism, against radicalism. And one of the stories that came out this week was the Henry Jackson Society had a study that came out that talked about why is it the, the horrific abuses have been increasing against women and children committed by ISIS. And the researcher, Nikita Malik, had a very poignant review. And I, I would ask all of you to pull it and take a look at it because it talks about how now as ISIS gets squeezed, they're beginning to get choked off in their financing, especially from oil, from taxation, from sales of products, food, etc. So they're finding that their one of their only sources of income remaining is kidnapping and abductions. In 2016, $30 million went into the coffers of ISIS because of kidnappings and abduction. How is it that sexual violence is part of the Islam of ISIS. So first of all, just as, as as barbaric and horrific it would be that the acts in Berlin and Paris and Manchester and San Bernardino and Raqqa and in, in northern Iraq and back to all these acts of horrific terror, mass violence, seem to be recruitment tools. So the mindset of a jihadi is that these they dehumanize the targets of their acts of terror. That somehow, not only does the ends justify any means necessary to get there, but they believe they are God and that these people are not victims but simply tools, dirt in their mind. That's the mindset of a radical Islamist. That's how Al-Qaeda thinks. That's how ISIS, Jabhat al-Nusra, all of these folks believe before they commit their act of terror and they believe that they will be given paradise regardless of the life they've led. It gives them redemption. But how is it that their targets have so quickly become girls and women? It's a slippery slope. They don't go from treating women as equals in Islamist, less violent societies to then becoming horrifically barbaric and enslaving young Yazidi girls and Christian girls. This is not unique to ISIS. This is, I think, a really important point. Boko Haram in Somalia. In Africa, for for decades, for years, has been targeting young girls and women, making them into suicide bombers, into jihadis, but also, much more so, targeting non-Muslim girls, as we saw in the Kocho school, the Christian school in Kocho near Sanjar. Those girls who became simply a hashtag of Save Our Girls, for years were lost in Nigeria.
It was not a coincidence. It just happened to be a school of girls. They view them as particularly attractive targets because they enslave them. And it's used to attract jihadis and further recruitment. So the misogyny of Islamism, when you see me so emotional against female genital mutilation that exists to the hundreds of millions around the world. Sunni clerics in Northern Virginia, as we saw with El Sayyid, that gave himself some explanation and then apologized and still hasn't been fired from the mosque in Dardar al-Hajra in Northern Virginia around Fairfax. Gave a sermon about how the girls need to be circumcised because they're born hypersexual. Without the procedure, they will be hedonistic and they will commit acts of wanton sexuality as we see in this community in the West and con- countries where they do not do female, female circumcision, as they call it, which it's not circumcision, it's mutilation. But if they don't do that, then they feel that that's part of the sexual deviance of the West. You don't think that culture, that ideology, which is Islamist, which is Salafi, plays a role in the slippery slope that creates the enslavement of Yazidi girls, of Christian girls, by Boko Haram, by ISIS, by Al-Qaeda and others? It's all the same slippery slope. So I ask my Muslim brothers and sisters, if you're going to work against Islamism, start with defeating the misogyny in your neighborhoods, in your mosques. Get representation of women on the boards of your mosque. Allow to break down the barriers that they put between men and women in the mosque. Rather than having women behind men, why not have them left and right, of equal level in front of the mosque. All of these things should be part of the conversation in the freest country in the planet, but no, we have women that are referred to as the women upstairs by Prime Minister Trudeau, who visits a mosque and doesn't care that he can't even shake the hands or meet any of the women when he goes in and just says, hey, to the women upstairs. Or when President Obama went to the mosque in Baltimore. And again, they allowed men and women to mix when he went in, but when he left, gender apartheid was part of that mosque. My families, both on my mother's and my father's side, celebrated women's equality in Syria of the way they were raised. Societally, there were many challenges in Syria. Not as bad as Saudi Arabia or Iran, but certainly not as westernized as France or America or Britain. And westernized meaning recognizing the equality of men and women. The human rights of women are not perceived as equal. But there are families that are reform-minded, that are modern-minded, that do believe that these things can be interpreted. Passages can be reinterpreted in a way that says that women should have an equal vote in a court and that those laws, as interpreted in the Quran or in the Hadith, should be reinterpreted and put in the context of modern day, not in the context of the 7th or 12th century. And that there are ways to interpret them in 2017 that would demand equality, that would no longer tell a girl or a woman that she only gets a quarter of the inheritance of her brother. There are ways to interpret that in a more modern way, to where they deserve equal inheritance, to where they get equal vote, to where they have equal property rights. And we should have that debate in America. But to say that that has nothing to do with the enslavement of girls by ISIS... To say that somehow Saudi Arabia is celebrating that finally it gives women the right to drive in the same country where if a a woman is raped by a man in Saudi Arabia, she is the criminal because A, she was alone with that man, and thus therefore we can't allow them to drive, so saith the Saudi Wahhabi 
barbarians who run the government and the, and the judiciary in Saudi Arabia. That somehow a woman loses her right to bodily autonomy and sentient control of herself once she leaves her home without her husband, her brother, her uncle, or her guardian. They can't even travel without a stamp from their family member. And that has nothing to do with where ISIS learns its militancy and enslavement. And now you have modern-day slavery with money being made by purchase and sale of human beings and especially young girls. It should horrify every Muslim that that's being done in the name of our faith every day. It should horrify every Muslim and that, that horror should lead us to reform locally so that our imams are giving sermons every Friday not about Islamophobia and other nonsense that pales in comparison to the crimes against humanity being done in the name of our faith from Syria and Iraq to Saudi Arabia and Iran and Pakistan and Egypt. The enslavement, the torture, the abuse, and the rape of women across the Middle East from FGM at birth and infancy to rape and the deprivement of education and property rights. On and on. We need to fix this. We can fix this. But the silence needs to end. It will not end until we stop giving Muslims a pass on the root causes of the misogyny and sex crimes of groups like ISIS. Don't let your Muslim friends forget that. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. Breaching the fault lines of today. This is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. Hey, this is Jackie from the Jackie Daly Show. Join me Sunday afternoons, 2 to 4 Eastern, right here on the Blaze Radio Network, where we discuss all things energy, below the ground, on the ground, above the ground, and way above the ground in space. Energy is what we need to survive. All new programs every Sunday, 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern. Plus, you can download the show and listen anytime on SoundCloud or iTunes, Google Play Music. Join me, Jackie Daly, Sunday, 2 to 4 Eastern, here on theblaze.com slash radio. The Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This. It is always great to be with you. It's, uh, thank you for uh, tuning in. And, you know, I want to leave with you uh, a couple vignettes, uh, interesting stories that uh, I think may not have made the major media, but I think are worth paying attention to. One is Russia Today. Russia Today, the propaganda arm of the Kremlin, of Putin, their autocratic um, uh, pravda, if you will, was making a lot of headway under Obama. It went from obscurity to being present on most cable channel selections and having huge penetrations into hotels with viewership going up. And now with the Assad regime, you find... Uh, uh, many of the folks who are Assad supporters in America getting their information from RT. Now they're complaining in a report out of Reuters, I believe, I think printed in Time also by Jack Moore, who said that they can't even hire a stringer. They can't get a cub reporter anymore. Their, their staff, especially Americans, are leaving in mass. This is good news. Now, Yes, the, the media has been obsessed with Russia because they're anti-Trump. They're obsessed with trying to connect Trump to Russia. And the moment that story goes away, all of their anti-Russian activity will go away. And they'll go back to pretending to be anti-Russia. All the while, we look back at Hillary and Obama and others. Remember Obama's whisper to Putin that he's just constrained by the elections, but he'll be much better, freer, able to help him after the elections. So, listen, the fealty to the power brokers of Putin and its corruption is a bipartisan problem. But if there's one good thing coming out of the microscope that has now begun to reveal all of the shared information that we see that's been coming out, as we see now Kapersky, 
The Russian software appears to have been has been a tool for spying, as obviously the Russian television propaganda network. Uh, one of the uh, uh, heads, the the editor in chief of RT, said that. There is another enormous and negative negative effect we are having today. Russian state TASS news agency cited as saying in testimony at Russian parliamentary hearing Thursday, people are scared, people are afraid, she said. The U.S. Department of Justice has ordered that RT and Sputnik News, another news organization with ties to the Russian government, are obligated to register under FARA, Foreign Agents Registration Act. The law seeks to ensure that foreign organizations that play a role and influencing American public opinion, give detailed information about their operation. She complained that the BBC, Al Jazeera, are not required to register. BBC is an ally in NATO, so that's nonsense. But Qatar? Yeah, I think it should be registered. That's a good point. But you also in Russia today should be registered as foreign agents because that's exactly what your news agency is. And I've talked to you before. Remember last year, the anchor that walked off the set when she found herself simply could no longer be in her own skin spouting off the lies that are fed to her from the Kremlin and from Moscow. On September 1, the FBI and Justice Department reportedly questioned Andrew Feinberg, the former White House reporter for Sputnik. They wanted to know, where did my orders come from? And if I ever got any direction from Moscow, they were interested in examples of how I was steered towards covering certain issues. So now many of them are leaving because they could not, they're worried about becoming targets of congressional investigation. I hope Larry King is next. Good old Larry King went from fossilization on CNN to uh, um, working for RT. I was at a fundraiser in which, oh, somehow all of a sudden Larry King, who was not only on the board, there seemed to be a a donation made in which, an in-kind donation, they did an auction to bid off a free ride in a MiG-25 over the Kremlin in Moscow. Yeah. Fascinating. You know, some of our families would not, you know, my family that escaped Syria, part of the reason they became as pro-American, pro-democracy, was because of how deeply anti-communist and anti-Soviet they were when the Ba'ath took over. And they realized that the, the horrific impact that the Soviet Union, the Russians were having in Syria during the Cold War. And we see that again today as the revolution died because of its opposition from outside Syria and support of the Assad regime by Iran and Russia. So the last story I want to leave you with is a great write-up by Tony Badrin from the Foundation of Defense of Democracy who wrote a piece on basically how Hezbollah is calling the shots in Iran-Syria policy. Tony's piece is excellent in that it connects the dots that too many people separate. We like to look, as Tony points out, separately between Hezbollah, Iran's government of the Khomeinists, the IRGC, the Iranian Republican Guard, Corps, and Assad regime. And basically what it points out is that Hezbollah's position on the ground, and as you and I discussed a couple weeks ago, Hezbollah was lining up missiles and arms near Israel, and Israel has had to a couple times take them out in military operations because of the threat that it gave to the security of the, of the Israeli-Syrian border. Testimonies, as is pointed out by key figures in the war effort, have clarified that uh, Hezbollah, while thought of often as a proxy, as Tony points out, is actually at the heart of Iran's command structure. Nasrullah told an audience that he had traveled to Iran for a meeting with the Supreme Leader Ali Khomeini to discuss the situation in Syria during the early stages of the war. Quote, at the time, everyone was convinced the regime would fall into two or three months. Nasrullah reportedly said in the pro-Hezbollah al-Akbar newspaper. 
And, and Nasrallah told his followers, if we don't fight in Damascus, we'll be forced to fight in Hormel, Balbek, Dahiyya, Ghaziyya, the western Baqa, south Lebanon. So we must fight in Syria. So the meeting likely took place in April 2013, but he puts the pieces together that there's always been a coordination with Hezbollah's leadership and military leadership using Syria as a touchpoint for platform for building Hezbollah's breadth beyond Lebanon into a, another region around Israel and to call the shots of exactly what needs to happen. And many of us Syrians knew for long there have been 20, 30, 40,000 troops fighting for the Assad regime. And this didn't happen overnight. There had been a decade of increasing Iranian infiltration and control of the Assad regime. But this is an extremely important point as we look at what's happening and understanding Syria. As we say, oh, let's get rid of ISIS. And you see almost a, a, a combined propaganda operation in which much of the news that we know to be true of what we're doing in Raqqa, what we're doing in northern Iraq, Iran tries to take credit for in its propaganda that somehow it's responsible through Shia radical fighters killing ISIS and others when in fact it's finally going away because of Secretary Mattis and others that have finally been given the green light by a president who does not shackle them with limited bombardment and an inability to decimate ISIS. But Iran has shown that it's using Syria as a platform for not only fighting ISIS, which has never been their goal to get rid of. They love leaving ISIS as a foil, as Michael Weiss and others have pointed out. But ultimately, the Shia crescent from Baghdad from Tehran to Baghdad to Damascus to Lebanon is the hegemony that the Shia want in their own pseudo-caliphate against the Sunnis in Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Qatar, and the Gulf states. That's the reality. Well, it's been another great week talking to you. We've gone from Arab-American billionaires to conservative appeasement to Russia, to Hezbollah. And another great week of conversation. How do we get to reform? How do we advance American values? How do we be transparent in this battle? How do we learn together about what we're fighting? This is Zudi Jasser. Thank you for joining me again on Reform This. Please subscribe. Tell your friends about our podcast. Join me on Twitter at Dr. Zudi Jasser, D-R-Z-U-H-D-I Jasser. Join me on Facebook, MZ Jasser or MZudi Jasser. And until next week, God bless. This is Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network.